Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Benjamin Day. And I'm Jillian Mason. And this is the Medicare for All podcast, the podcast for everybody who needs health care. We were just about to start, and Jillian said, wait, don't start. There's one more thing. What is it, Jillian? Is something really important that you had to say off camera? <laughs> well, we didn't actually say who was going to introduce our guests, who are like the most important part of this episode. Oh, that's actually kind of important. Do you want to do you want to introduce our guests? Yes, I want to introduce our guests. All right. All How right. about if I set up the topic and then you introduce the guests? I'm so glad that's we're doing this live on camera. That sounds great. <laughs> All right. Yeah, people so really enjoy hearing this. Yeah, this is amazing. We should do this every week. Um, <laughs> so this week we are teaming up. Actually, we're doing a cross pod cross post podcast with the Poverty Policy Podcast, which is produced by the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council, which is a very closely allied organization with Healthcare Now. Um, and we're going to discuss the Build Back Better bill and kind of weigh its potential impact, especially on individuals experiencing poverty and houselessness. Um, Jillian, you want to introduce our guests? Well, yes, I do. Thank you. Um, so just to let you guys know a little bit more about the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council. Um, so it's a membership organization uh, that unites thousands of healthcare professionals, people with lived experience of homelessness, and also advocates who work towards the goal of improving healthcare and ending homelessness, um, which is something that I know we all pray for and, and uh, advocate for every day. Um, they have a podcast of their own, of course, the Poverty Policy Podcast, uh, which explores the connection between some of these uh, structural and social policy issues and the lived experience of poverty. So I am very excited to introduce Courtney Pladsen, um, uh, who is the Director of Clinical and Quality Improvement, and uh, Barbara DePietro, uh, or DePietro, um, who is the Senior Directory, Director of Policy for the National Healthcare for the Homeless. Hello, folks. Hello. Thank you so much for having us. Courtney, with a very clinical-looking background, so I can see how you're the director of clinical and quality improvement. Um, so I, I would love to start off by just asking you some questions about Healthcare for the Homeless Council and uh, the population you serve and work with. Um, so, you know, what are some common like misconceptions about people who are experiencing homelessness and healthcare? I'll let Courtney start on this one. Thanks, Barbara. Well, um, I think. We feel really lucky to work at this intersection of health and homelessness. Um, I think some of the common misconceptions are that um, people experiencing homelessness, health is not a priority priority to them, and they don't engage in health often, which is certainly not the case. Um, and I think the, another big misconception is that people experiencing homelessness aren't working, uh, and that often right. they're just you know, not engaging with services. And, you know, there's lots of common misconceptions in the general population of, of laziness and other moral failings. And, and none of those things are true. Um, I have many patients who um, take great pride in their health, work really hard despite so many barriers to care, to continue to keep themselves healthy, to manage their chronic illnesses and to seek out the care that they need. Um, and often they're coming in you know, 8 a.m. as soon as the doors open to make sure that they get their needs met and address their health issues. So I'm continually impressed um, by my patients and people who experience homelessness and their um, the way that they continue to overcome barriers to get their needs met um, to make sure that they're healthy. 
That's, I'm so glad that you like, yeah, I'm so glad you called bullshit on some of those ex, uh, those kind of expectations and stereotypes. Because I found that even people in our movement who are fairly like woke, right, um, they still have some of these attitudes about folks who are houseless. And um, yeah, it's just great that you guys are out there uh, really disabusing people of those false notions. I can add in two more um, myths that I think we regularly work with. One is that people choose to be homeless or that they want to be homeless. Mm. And I'll be the first one to say that homelessness is a choice. It's a policy choice that we make in this country, but it is not a choice at the individual level. If you're living on the street or in a shelter, you have no choices. And I think that's just something that we really need to get frank with here in the United States. Uh, talk about calling bullshit on something. I want to call bullshit mm -hmm. on that one. Uh, I'll also call, and this is relevant uh, to us uh, talking about healthcare coverage, is that there's also this idea that just because people are poor, that they qualify for Medicaid. And that mm, right. couldn't be further from the truth. And in fact, most of our patients in non-expansion states are currently uninsured. And a good number of the folks that are in expansion states are still uninsured. And that's something that we need to grapple with in this country. It's not about expanding existing coverage because even when we have coverage, it doesn't work well. So that's yeah. another myth. And we're going to get back to this when we start talking about how the Build Back Better bill might impact states that have not expanded Medicaid. And when you say non-expansion states, you mean the states that have not expanded the eligibility for Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, which right. incredibly, there's still quite a few of them. Um, incredibly. Yeah. So uh, one follow-up question I had for um, either uh, Courtney or Barbara was, uh, you know, what are, I mean, just given your perspectives on the ground, what are some... Uh, common barriers to accessing healthcare for folks who are struggling with housing insecurity? Um, and, and what do you all advocate for in terms of insurance coverage for that population? How about I talk to the barriers and Barbara, you can talk about insurance. Um, sure. So the barriers are many. Um, just if we think of social determinants of health, we think of transportation, we think of um, just be able to that the ability to get to medical appointments, uh, lack of access to cell phones um, can be a huge challenge. So many appointments are made by phone or if you don't accept uh, the text message about your appointment, your appointment will get canceled. Um, being uh, experiencing homelessness, it takes up so much time. And so to have the time to be able to get up and go to appointments while you're trying to also just keep roof over your head and get your food needs met and get your other basic necessities, it is really challenging to then um, be able to make the time to go to an appointment and wait. Because we all know going to a doctor's office takes many, many hours. So I just think the amount of barriers are huge. Not having insurance, though, is certainly one of the largest barriers to be able to access um, not only healthcare but high quality care. So we want to get people into in the door to see their primary care providers. We want to make sure that they have insurance to cover medications, necessary testing, and other things that um, just are, are become very difficult to access without without insurance. And I can pick it up from there too. I would think even a bridge um, barrier to care is, and, and this is something else we need to be honest about, a stigma and racism is also a barrier to care. And so we don't treat poor people well in this country broadly. In the healthcare system, poor and homeless folks are treated really abominably uh, in our healthcare system. And if you're black and brown, then you are treated especially poorly. Um, and so all of this combines to, in particular, spilling over into our public policy decisions. So when we think about who's uninsured in this country, it is disproportionately black and brown folks, uh, mm -hmm. and it's disproportionately indigenous folks and people who are uh, otherwise marginalized in our community. 
And when we look at the people who are fighting any kind of expansions uh, to that coverage, we look and see who they are. They are wealthy white folks who are perfectly well insured. Uh, and so when we just think about where the barriers are to getting better coverage, um, the barriers to coverage are eligibility, um, complicated enrollment processes, multiple steps that require an address, or you missed the flyer, you missed the paperwork, so you're unenrolled, or you can't find an, uh, someone in your network. That So all of those steps combine to be a lot of paperwork, a lot of hassle, a lot of loopholes. And on the end of the day, it's even if you manage to get coverage, you probably fall off six months later because again, you missed a phone call or a letter. Mm -hmm. That's just mm -hmm. not the way that health coverage should be in this country. And I assure you, it makes me angry that none of our French or German counterparts have to deal with all of this. And so, and that's us, you know, who, who have houses, who have regular, like, like, imagine all of the complications of doing that when you're living in a shelter or under a bridge, it becomes impossible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, how, I think a lot of people don't realize that like homeless people's lives are so um, rigidly scheduled, right? And so like those kind of, I think they might imagine homeless people having, as having a lot of time on their hands to do those things. But in reality, right, as I go from the night shelter to the day shelter to the lunch space to the, you know, and I'm going to access these services and uh, you have to play by their rules, right? Which means that you're just like rigidly scheduled all the time. I think that was one of the most surprising things I learned about homelessness from talking with folks who are experiencing it. Yeah. Mm. So um, I think your organization has a really unique perspective uh, because your organization includes both people who are experiencing homeless or homelessness or have experienced it in the past and also medical providers who, uh, who focus on um, uh, providing healthcare to uh, folks who are homeless. And so I wondered about like those two perspectives, right? Why those two perspectives? Um, why do you think it's important to bring them together in, uh, in your advocacy work? Uh, Courtney, you want me to talk about uh, consumers? You can talk about providers? Sure. Okay. Uh, so I just will say that uh, we engage the people that we serve in the leadership and in the discussion and uh, the decisions of the work we do because the people who are most directly impacted by the problem are the people who should be at the forefront of the solution. And so we're trying to operationalize what our, uh, our patients are telling us they want. They want a simpler, easier way to get healthcare and they want housing. And so that's what we're arguing for and, and that's what we're fighting for every day. Uh, but bringing their voices into this makes that more authentic uh, and it keeps it from being too ivory tower and out of touch. Um, so when we like to think that we're very rooted, not just in the services we provide, but also in the people that we serve and care for and care about. Uh, so Courtney, as, as a provider, can speak eloquently to the provider part. I think one of the things that's really interesting and important for medical providers of all kinds of staff that, that care for people experiencing homelessness in a clinical setting is that we can help not only share the experience of our patients, but also share the experience of having to push against inequitable systems constantly. What burns clinical staff out are not the patients. It's pushing against these systems that are crushing us at every single turn. And so what can be incredibly helpful for providers is to 
be a part of advocacy efforts to use that voice, use and leverage that frustration to do some of the system work, to actually see it change, to actually work towards creating more equitable systems for our patients. That helps give you the motivation to go back to clinic when you're hearing the stories from your patients, when you're having to navigate these systems, that you're taking that back to uh, that testimony to your state legislature or your city council. And so there's a synergy in bringing that advocacy to your clinical practice. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of part of, um, instead of trying to treat every patient who walks in, whether they're dealing with housing insecurity or not, um, just as a, as a body, um, kind of going further upstream to the things that make them sick or provide structural barriers to health in the first place. And, you know, Medicare for All is kind of one of these structural changes to, about access to healthcare, but we're kind of part of a much broader, really intertwined health justice movement, more broadly speaking, that involves housing security, but also access to healthy foods, um, also environmental uh, it, things that impact our health, uh, urban environment, rural environment, um, kind of the whole gamut of things that impact your health that we call the social determinants of health. But are actually just kind of all the things that impact your life. I mean, it, it really is the entire uh, span of social policy that we end up dealing with. And it's kind of interesting to think about, uh, to start and to start transitioning to talking about this Build Back Better bill, which does actually, mm -hmm. it, it has the potential to impact, especially when it was looking bigger, had the, the potential to impact a lot of these areas of social determinants, including you know, uh, access to education, access to childcare, um, you know, a pre-K education, as well as uh, access to healthcare. Um, so why don't we dig in a little bit to the Build Back Better bill? Um, you know, the, where it is right now, the really big picture is that it, it has passed the House again. Um, it passed the House one time in a much larger version. And then, you know, we saw Senator Manchin and Senator Cinema kind of negotiate down the size of the bill uh, in, in the Senate. And they had this backroom uh, negotiation with Biden, who they released kind of together this framework that was a much shrunken down bill. Um, slightly less than $2 trillion over 10 years. The original bill was going to be uh, almost $4 trillion. So all of us, all of our, us, our advocacy organizations and our members had been kind of fighting and working to get things added to this bigger bill. And then suddenly the total dollar amount really shrank down. And that impacted probably what most of us uh, were suddenly fighting over um, and trying to win. So, uh, Jillian, uh, you know, healthcare now, a lot of our focus has been on Medicare expansion, although that is n by no means the only or the, the most important uh, healthcare expansion in Build Back Better. But Jillian, can you give us like a quick update about where Medicare expansion stuff is at? And then I'm going to I'm going to turn to National Healthcare for the Homeless folks to tell us a little bit more about especially the Medicaid expansion parts, um, as well as some of the other um, um, subsidies that are in the bill, especially for low income folks. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and also, for those of you who are just listening to the audio, I wanted to just inform you that as soon as Ben said, build back better, um, everyone got a very sour look on their face um, on this podcast. <laughs> we are not happy. Um, We've been passing this bill for the last year, haven't we? I mean, it, it seems like fucking forever. <laughs> might pass someday. Uh, but maybe not in our lifetimes. Um, so uh, yeah, so basically uh, the version of the bill that passed the House um, is gonna add uh, some hearing coverage to Medicare, which is really great. Um, uh, unfortunately, we were fighting for hearing dental and 
vision um, and dental and vision got cut out of it, which is really a shame. Um, and uh, let's see, there are some really good, I think, improvements in terms of drugs um, and pharmaceuticals uh, specifically. Um, <laughs> uh, so we're, uh, it's going to be a limit on the amount that Medicare patients will pay out of pocket for drug coverage. Um, basically a restriction on how much drug manufacturers can increase prices every year. And it's going to allow Medicare uh, for the first time uh, to negotiate prices with drug manufacturers. Um, so the way that it's going to work is that uh, they're going to choose uh, between the most expensive and most common drugs um, that Medicare uh, users um, use. Right. And then they are going to pick 10 of them in the first in uh, 2025, which is the year that this goes into effect. Right? Um, in 2025, they'll pick 10 of them that Medicare can, can negotiate with drug companies. In uh, 2026, they'll pick another 15 on top of those 10, and then um, by on 20 in 2028, they'll pick another 20 um, that they'll be able to add to that list, and it's cumulative. Um, so you know, basically, um, that means a lot of uh, a lot of drugs are going to end up being um, slightly cheaper for folks, which is which is good. And by then, we'll have passed Medicare for all, so all this detail is not going to matter by then. I'm, totally irrelevant. Yeah. Totally irrelevant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm willing to commit to that. Um, honestly, I am willing to pass, you know, get Medicare for all passed just to avoid having to deal with some of the really complicated architecture bill. Um, you know, five drugs, 15, 10. Um, and uh, so, by the way, this is all for uh, for older drugs, uh, excludes new drugs. Um, and uh, uh, that is, um, I think that's important right now because we're thinking, you know, top of mind, yeah. you know, folks are going to be thinking about drugs that will treat COVID and those, of course, will be emerging. Um, but for your reference, the FDA only approves about 53 new drugs last year. So. Yeah. And I would add a, a political irony to to your com to your comments there, Jillian, which is I, I knew the I knew the pharmaceutical industry was going to fight tooth and nail against basically all of the pharma prescriptions, allowing Medicare to negotiate drug prices putting caps on all this stuff. Um, but what really surprised me was the power of the dental industry, dentists in particular, um, who basically succeeded in having all dental coverage stripped from the bill. Um, initially, the, the, version, the, the first version of Build Back Better that passed the House did have some dental coverage, although it was really, really pitiful. Um, and they basically mobilized dentists across the entire country to strip out dental coverage from Medicare because they're they're worried that Medicare will pay them less than uh, private dental insurance does or people paying out of pocket. Um, so I was I was set back and, and you can see that pharma actually didn't succeed as wildly as the American Dental Association did um, in opposing these new kind of Medicare provisions. And it, it is kind of shocking to me that, I mean, Medicare covers uh, seniors 65 and older and some people with disabilities. Um, but when you're older, that is exactly when you really need dental vision and hearing probably the most. Yeah. And it is when it becomes the hardest to find coverage in the United States. So this is really um, urgent. We, we put out a report on sort of the dental crisis uh, for American seniors with just some shocking stories we heard from our members. Um, so we're going to be really turning it up on, on dental coverage. But um, I would love to ask. Um, I, I'll, yeah, maybe I'll... lest we forget, it was mm -hmm. the American Medical Association that prevented us from having universal health care coverage many decades ago. That's so, true. Unfortunately, clinical groups um, have have shown 
that their interests um, they've put in ahead of their patients historically. But especially dentists are bad. I mean, we've, <laughs> childhood, we've all been afraid of them. Dentists, clowns, evil, we knew it. Um, yeah. Though that's been so much more effective villain, um, making a villain out of the pharmaceutical industry, which is perfectly appropriate. Um, yeah. But we haven't yet really solidified villainizing dentists. And there's <laughs> yeah. a certain ring of hell for an industry that's actively going to advocate and prevent people from getting life-saving care. And I think that that can't be illustrated here more, more strongly, is that dental isn't just about looking nice. This is about saving people's lives. And yeah. It, it makes me bananas and bend. I, I absolutely agree. When I saw how hard the ADA mm -hmm. fought against that, I thought uh, shame on them and a pox on their soul. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. You're right. Special ring of hell. Special ring of hell for dentists. And you should um, think that they would make easy targets, actually. I mean, people really do hate going to the dentist far more so than going to the doctor. <laughs> and, and again, it's one thing to advocate for you to be paid a decent wage for the service that you provide. That's all good in the game. And dentists should be paid for what they're serving. I mean, fair, fair compensation is all good in the game. But to actively deny people even the ability to get that care to begin with is appalling, appalling. Yeah, I agree. It's a long uh, fight to be fighting. Mm -hmm. And then, of Absolutely. course, yes, of course, then, you know, and, and, and vision also got, uh, got right. dropped. And so mm -hmm. just, you know, eyeglasses, taking care of oral health, which is directly connected to the rest of your body. And then we managed to eke out the hearing uh, service, which... Okay, great. Ears are part of the body as well. Uh, we're making good technological uh, advancements and making hearing aids much cheaper. But I just feel like, again, once again, we are settling for crumbs from the table yeah. when we have been starved for that loaf of bread forever. And Courtney, I so appreciate you starting mm -hmm. with the American Medical Association because I was going to mention that and say mm -hmm. that we have a long history of medical groups making, making healthcare injustice in this country. Yeah, and the AMA opposed Medicare and Medicaid originally uh, back in the 60s when it was passed. Um, and they're not a whole lot better now, um, although our allies at Physicians for National Health Program, I think, have been organizing for so long and so effectively now that actually a majority of doctors do now support Medicare for all. Uh, they forced the AMA to pull out of the Partnership for America's Healthcare Future, which is the anti-Medicare for all group. So uh, kicking and screaming, the AMA is being dragged slightly to the, I don't know, the left or the right, or they're, they're being dragged out of their really horrible positions. Um, we don't have the same equivalent in the dental industry, but we need one badly. Um, and speaking of these crumbs versus the loaf of bread, Barbara, um, what was the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council advocating for in Build Back Better? And what is still in there right now that still might be important, even if it's crumbs compared to what we really our, uh, our communities really need? One provision that was particularly important to us was closing the coverage gap in the 12 states that have not expanded Medicaid, as you pointed out earlier, right. under the Affordable yep. Care Act. So we still have most of our patients who are uninsured in those 12 states. Uh, and so there still is a provision uh, in the Build Back Mediocre, which is how we're thinking of it, uh, is this <laughs> idea of um, we're going to we're going to fill it with what private for profit insurance. And so that's how, and then this doesn't kick in for, for quite some time. So we get a, a few years before we can get that going. And then it only lasts for a few years. 
So we don't know what the end game of that is going to be. It could be that we build even private insurance for this group of people only to yank it away in a few years, which seems appalling as well. But then also, once again, we have this sanctity of the private for-profit health insurance model that has been shown to be more expensive than Medicaid and delivers less services and frankly has people with a lower satisfaction than Medicaid. And I just feel like you know, for all of the budget hawks out there uh, who are interested in how much things get paid uh, or things cost, they're certainly not concerned about the cost of for-profit insurance when actually offering this Medicare or Medicaid would have been cheaper. Uh, Courtney probably has some some opinions about this as well. Oh, oh. I think you're uh, muted. Sorry. I just, what I wanted was coming back to in framing this a little bit though is People are, are balking at the, the ticket price of, of Build Back Better. They're saying this is so much money. This is this is irresponsible. But what I just need to remind people is that this is after three decades of historic, consistent divestment in healthcare, public health, and all the social determinants. I mean, affordable housing, um, our education systems, all the other things uh, Ben, you were talking about and all the different aspects of society, we've consistently divested into things that make people healthy. Um, and so, and of course, disproportionately impacts uh, people of color and marginalized populations. And so when people saw $5 trillion, they were upset and, and saying this is too much money, but it's actually trying to get back to where levels need to be in terms of actually helping people have um, be their healthiest selves. And so that is what is just driving me bonkers. Um, but it shouldn't be that your zip code is a driver of your health outcomes. And that's what happens when we have states that are non-Medicaid expansion states. Uh, you literally have less access to care that is life-saving. Um, and so this is what is just driving me bonkers, is this inequitable outcome. We shouldn't have a zip code that be, have that much relevance to your life outcome. I just wanted to add in that like in the cost for the total health care package is about 330 billion. And that comes with a savings though of 325 billion, right? <laughs> and so those are the kind of factors that people aren't paying attention to. Excellent. Yeah. Sorry, Barbara. No, not at all. It, 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 one of the things I'll even add to what Courtney said is it's not just those points. It's also the hypocrisy of it. We don't really care how much the Trump tax uh, cuts cost. In fact, more than the Build Back Better over 10 years and 80% of that going to the wealthiest people in the country. That was totally fine. No one, None of the budget hawks cared about that. None of the budget hawks cared about the trillions of dollars that have been lost in overseas wars. And again, can't account for most of that. And yet, oh, we're going to audit the nonprofit, you know, six times over uh, for, oh, you know, you, you dare serve someone who might not have been Medicaid eligible. Seriously. So again, these are moral decisions that we make in our country on where we put our dollars and what we say is a good investment. And one of the strange things about getting involved with the Medicare for All movement over these many years has been that it's actually cheaper to pay for for health care publicly. Um, so this actually puts me in line with, you know, conservative deficit hawks, if you actually want to save money. Uh, the only difference is, I mean, we're paying for almost all these things already, right? We're just forcing people to pay for them privately, which means that higher income people in 
positions of privilege have a much easier time paying for it than lower income people, but of, often there's no choice really. Um, or people are paying with their time, right? Family members stepping in for, for childcare, things like this. Um, so it is literally a lot of this, it's not, it's not a new expense. It's just shifting it from, we're gonna pay for this uh, privately, wringing it out of people who can't afford it versus an equitable tax system um, where we're gonna pay for it through the public sector, which it turns out is often more efficient and more equitable. Um, so that also really drives me crazy. Um, and Ben, if I could even add to that too, I'm just thinking that we spend a lot of money in this country making sure that we don't deliver services to people. So when I think about all of the barriers that are purposely put in place, these are this is where the choices come in. Policy choices come in where it makes it so hard for as providers to deliver care that it actually would be cheaper just to deliver the care rather than all of the administrative hurdles that we have to make sure that someone isn't eligible. And mm -hmm. so again, uh, work requirements under Medicaid are an ideal example of this, but so are prior authorizations and all of the rest. Courtney spends on average, any provider spends um, two hours on paperwork for every hour of direct care delivered. We've got our providers doing most of their time rather than being a doctor or a, or a provider doing paperwork. And this is the administrative hurdles that we've put in because we're so afraid of Courtney practicing her trade that we make it very difficult for her to do so. And, in, and when Courtney talks about what's burning out our clinicians to the point where they don't wanna be doctors or, or providers or nurses anymore, it's the kind of moral injury coupled with the avalanche of, of administrative, administrivia even. It's, it's not even any value added. Uh, to the care you're providing. I, I feel like I'm speaking out of turn because I'm sure Courtney can talk more about this. <laughs> I, I more wanted to talk, Ben, to your point about how much money we spend on healthcare, but I would argue we, we literally are so afraid of delivering equitable care that we're willing to spend a lot more money not delivering the care. Right. And that just makes me crazy too. Paying Wait, for cruelty. <laughs> wasn't it Ted Cruz that said, if you want an MRI, we have more MRIs than any other country. <laughs> That's my senator. I want to. Um... Thanks, thanks, Ted. No, very helpful. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> and who doesn't love a good MRI? I mean. <laughs> I know I enjoy one on a Friday night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, we spend so much money on healthcare. We spend the most of all developed countries and we have some of the worst health outcomes. And it is shameful. The money that we're spending is going to overhead. It's going to advertising. It's going to for-profit companies. I mean, it's just, it's gross and it's highly, highly inequitable. And it is, it is going to continue to burn providers. We have seen people leave in droves during the pandemic because mm -hmm. of so much burnout and what is getting pushed more and more on providers is all of these administrative burdens. And people just want to Healthcare providers want to care for patients. They don't want to be tied up in paperwork. I have to leave this meeting and afterwards finish up my paperwork for the day. And it's just like, I want to be able to go home with my family. It's exhausting and unnecessary. Yeah, there was some incredible, I mean, maybe this is another uh, topic for a podcast, but I think something like one in five providers left their job during the, the pandemic or something just truly ast astonishing. Uh, burnout just became even more realer uh, with the, the stresses of the pandemic. Um, and I did want to, you know, the especially this Medicaid expansion and the non-expansion states you mentioned, I wanted to give a nod to uh, the Congressional Black Caucus really took the lead on that um, in the House. Um, now, 
Of course, all of this still now has to face the Senate to even keep the crumbs that we have left from the loaf of bread that we started with. Um, so I wanted to kind of switch to talking a little bit about, well, first of all, how do we balance this advocating for kind of the incremental things that we literally need to fight for to keep people alive within the current system, with, along with the the more structural changes that we need down the road. I mean, how do you all, I mean, obviously we, we deal with this a little bit at healthcare now, even though our primary mission, our one mission is to win Medicare for all, but for a group like National Healthcare for the Homeless Council, how do you all uh, juggle that, that sort of the sort of the two sides of this? I like to think of this as we, we are trying to walk and chew gum and we're asking our policymakers to do the same. There is no reason why we can't be working to improve, improving the system that we have now, but also working toward the system that we know we need. And so we try to improve the Medicaid program in particular, again, by adding coverage and eligibility and services and making it more flexible and bringing down barriers to enroll. At the same time, advocating for a Medicare for all system as the equitable healthcare system that we need in this country. So I expect our policymakers to be able to do both. I think where I struggle with this is that we are just coming off of a year where we have seen record number of overdose deaths. Mm. We, I have as a clinician in the past year lost more patients than I had in the previous nine years combined. Wow. This is urgent. Mm. I want to eventually put myself out of a job at the National Healthcare for the Homeless Council. I would, Us too. Love, <laughs> I would love for healthcare for the homeless not to have to exist. So I'm going to keep working to that end. But in the meantime, I'm just trying to keep people alive. And so I have to work on both. We need iterative pro progress. We need more insurance. We need access to care. We need treatment for people. Um, so we need those things now to keep people alive. But I have to keep thinking and dreaming that we will eventually not have to keep pulling people out of this down river, you know, suffering. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we need both. We can't we can't do one or the other or else we're just going to burn everyone out if we just continue to put out these fires. Um, there'll be no one left to keep doing this work. That's right. That's one of the reasons we have to continue to press on Medicaid, Medicare expansion, right? Um, even though we know that that's not ultimately the solution. Yeah, absolutely. Were you going to say something, Jillian? I was. I was. Go for it. Go for it. <laughs> I was going to say, like, um, I was going to ask, like, um, you know, what do I was going to say? Okay, so what can people do basically at this point? Build Back Better has been going on forever, right? And so um, I think that, you know, folks are a little bit exhausted, right? But we've got this one last push to get it into the Senate. And, you know, even these you know, incremental victories are, are something, right? Like as Courtney points out, right? Like they're, these are gonna make some material improvements in people's lives, help to keep some people alive while we fight for the real thing that we want. All right, so what do we gotta do to get this through the Senate? That's the question. I think one, I mean, I just, I think one thing, Courtney, you, you look like you're ready to roll though with, with a, a big response. Okay, all right. I'm I'm just, <laughs> need this we we have to get this passed like this if we lose this window if this goes past into 2022 i'm just afraid that we'll have not even build back mediocre we'll have built nothing 
We need the affordable housing. We need the provisions in Medicaid. We need we need what's in this to help us continue to to make this incremental progress. It's not enough, but we need this, and we need to hold on to it. And we need to get it over the finish line. So I would say here is that building on what Courtney said, we have to have a push to get this done now. And right now, you have a Republican leadership in the Senate that has made its career being obstructionist and making sure that nothing happens. And so while we have the slimmest of majorities here, in fact, we don't even really have a majority. We can eke it over the line with, with the one tie-cutting vote. But the point is, is that if we allow the leadership to just stymie this until we lose both the House and the Senate in the midterms, and then we just barrel into 2024, again, we feel nothing. We get nothing. We get, of course, we never get the loaf we need. We won't even get these crumbs from the table. And so the imperative is now. We managed to get the infrastructure bill through. And I think that was a real testament to getting some good things done. But all of the work that's most directly related to what we're doing uh, is in this Build Back Better package. And sure, it's not at all sufficient for what we need, but it's another bite at the apple. And we've got to have it. And it means, for anyone out there who particularly is represented in the Senate by a Republican, get on the phone, write letters, do, I mean, all of the advocacy that, that Healthcare Now talks about all the time, bird dogging, showing up at, 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 at events, asking and heckling your member to make sure that they do this, because we cannot go into the midterms and have this be undone. So you're saying that Ted Cruz is probably not going to do the right thing unless I push him to do the right thing. So I know like a <laughs> hard ask there, but there's going to be a lot of ours who probably are going to be on the fence and are. Susan and, Collins, and my senator. Exactly. Ooh, that's an one. So yeah. I do want to, I do want to add one thing that we haven't mentioned here because I just want to tie, can make this connection between environmental justice and homelessness. So many people are being displaced because of climate change. So increased fires, increased uh, impact of hurricanes. I mean, weather changes will continue to exacerbate and drive homelessness. And so one some of the provisions in Build Back Better that are addressing some of the key drivers of environmental uh, in climate change are essential as a multi-pronged approach at preventing homelessness as well. So I just want to say that we, that's not different. So what Barbara's saying is in this Build Better Back, there's so many things that in particular support um, healthcare and expanding access, um, but there's these other environmental structures too that um, in addressing climate change that is so essential at preventing homelessness. And I just want to highlight uh, Regina's great work at um, there is more information about Build Back Better in our bill summary at the council. So you can uh, just take a look at that resource and we can share that with you all um, just for how that is um, impacts our community in particular. Yeah, we'll link that up in the show notes. Yeah, we'll link that up, that resource up in the show notes. Um, and I would also highlight a few Democrats in the Senate who are really priorities, especially on the prescription drug stuff. Uh, there's a few senators, Democratic senators, who are close to pharma. And um, that means they're kind of the, the things blocking a lot of those uh, improvements in pharmaceutical coverage and out-of-pocket limits and negotiating lower drug prices that Jillian was listing. So uh, not to call anyone out, but I'm going to call them out. Um, Senator Menendez in New Jersey is probably the absolute worst of the Democrats on pharma. Um, 
and, and is also on the crucial finance committee, but also on the finance committee, Senator Carper from Delaware and Senator uh, Cortez Masto from Nevada. These have been sort of the three we've really been focused on, especially uh, pressuring them uh, around the prescription drug stuff and Medicare expansion stuff. Senator Wyden in Oregon is also really important. He's been kind of uh, drafting and writing the Senate side of the prescription uh, uh, changes. And then, of course, everyone knows you're probably sick of their names by now, but Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin are kind of the two who have been tanking this whole project. Um, and I, I kind of share Courtney's like, how is it that we just went through a pandemic and we still are like balking at doing the basic, most basic right things that we know we need now? Um, I mean, our healthcare system completely fell apart after living through a pandemic. No other country had to worry about, you know, do hospitals have to cut back their staff? Uh, because they're not getting enough expensive procedures, you know, uh, providing enough expensive procedures or uh, people losing their jobs due to the pandemic and then immediately losing their health insurance along with it. We're really the only developed country that, that had to live through that. And I was sure, I was sure that everyone, including legislators, would have like kind of a an eye-opening moment, a coming to God moment after living through the pandemic. But it hasn't happened. And I think partly it's because they've also found it's much easier to avoid their constituents during the pandemic. And they're, they're not in their offices, right? They have these webinars where it's really easy to control who talks and who doesn't talk. Um, but there is going to be a reckoning, and I think it's going to be groups like ours that kind of bring the reckoning. So that's our new slogan: uh, bring the reckoning, bringing the reckoning. <laughs> <clears throat> well, in a totally opposite vein, um, I've learned, I love this so much, that there's a tradition that you all have on the Poverty Policy Podcast of ending every podcast by asking, uh, what are you grateful for? So why don't we just go around and close this out? Um, Barbara, do you want to start off with what you're grateful for? Sure. Um, I have to say, I am grateful for everyone out there who continues to be pissed off at what injustice is in this country and is committed to continuing to fight for what's right. I'm grateful for all of our energy. I'm grateful for an ongoing energy that we can put into this because it's exhausting, but we will be victorious. And I just am grateful for everybody out there who's committed uh, to this work. Thank you. I love that one. Uh, Courtney? <sighs> I'm gonna think small and big. I'm really grateful for cozy, warm socks because it's December in Love Maine. It. And uh, so many of my patients came in. It was raining today, like 30 degrees. And so people are coming in with soaking wet feet. Mm. And it just makes me so grateful to have warm socks and just reminds me of how grateful I am to have a home and to have a safe place and warm place to be. Mm. I just, yeah, the gratitude there never ends. Um, to add to Barbara, one of the things that I've learned from her that I've so appreciated is how important the, a righteous fight is. So even if the fight is dreaming something that doesn't exist yet, even if it's knowing that the current structures look nothing like a just or equitable society, it's still worth the righteous fight. And so I've so appreciated that about Barbara and my colleagues of just, so I just feel so filled with gratitude for folks that are doing this work, dreaming of something better, and working and advocating toward that end. Thanks, Jillian. Yeah, I mean, thank you for reminding us that, you know, the arc of history is long, but it does bend towards justice. And I'm definitely grateful for that. 
Um, but in particular, just this conversation has reminded me how grateful I am for all the amazing providers and folks on the ground who are working to keep the houseless population safe. And so I want to thank you, Courtney. And I want to give a special shout out to my beautiful, talented, brilliant sister, Emily, who is a nurse for Boston Healthcare for the Homeless at St. Francis House. Her and Cecilia and all of their colleagues are just on the front lines every day trying to make sure that, um, you know, houseless people survive this pandemic and beyond. And um, the work that you all do is is so critical and, um, you know, remains really uh, close to uh, close to all of our hearts at uh, Healthcare Now. So I'm grateful for that. Thanks, Jillian, as one Bostonian to another uh, <laughs> sister Bostonian. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll close. I, you know, I think the, the dental report we did in relation to Build Back Better, where we, we really kind of listened to the stories that our members had about trying to access dental care and just the impact of not having access to dental care as, as most of these folks were, were seniors, had Medicare, had no dental coverage. Um, and it, it is, I really just didn't appreciate how impactful that could be. Um, how if you don't have any teeth, there's a real social stigma. A lot of folks were not leaving the house. We're kind of grateful for having masks because it let them go out a little bit more and talk a little bit more. Um, and just, you know, the impossibility that folks face when, you know, there's a $20,000 bill to, you know, to, if you need a full denture set and have all your teeth pulled. Some people had their teeth pulled and then couldn't afford the next step. I mean, it was just horrifying, but I was really grateful um, for them telling their stories to us, uh, sharing their powerful testimony with uh, members of Congress. And I think that that's gonna be the only way that we actually win this thing will be that people who are kind of being most impacted, taking leadership roles in our movement. Um, and I know both our organizations really believe in that. So that those are the folks I'm grateful for, especially this year. So thank you all so much. Really appreciate uh, joining you, Barbara and Courtney for this crossover podcast. I hope we can do another one soon. This has been fun. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you all. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Bye. Bye.